time ago? I don't know. Okay. All right. Good to see y'all. Doing well? I am. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. I would say it's a great, great leap forward, but that would have connotations that uh, nobody gets that. Great leap forward. Steve, do you know what the great leap forward was? Am I the only person in this room? Come on, there's got to be at least one more. Yes, okay, you would know. Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. It, it was, it, it's a part of Chinese history, and so don't feel bad. Okay. All right. Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start in on verse 7. And um, the game plan is to get through verse 16 today. No, it won't happen. But, <laughs> but that is the plan, and we're going to get, uh, get as far along as we possibly can. Uh, this is a section in which um, uh, Paul will be talking about gifts. Uh, we usually put the word spiritual in front of it because it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so they're spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Paul's going to talk about how that operates. Now, the, the important thing to notice before we plunge in and read is that Paul first talked about the unity of the church before he gets to the diversity of the church. Remember that he took the time to say that there's just one body, one spirit, one hope, that the Holy Spirit um, gives us uh, entry and membership in and uh, participation in the fellowship of the body of Christ, of the church, and, and gives us that one hope, hope of heaven, hope of glory, uh, hope of everlasting life, the hope that, that uh, sustains us in life. And that's all the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the, in the life of the believer. And then he said, there's one Lord, only one Lord Jesus Christ, one Lord who died for our sins, who's raised on our behalf. And so there's just one Lord, one faith in him. There's not a bunch of different faiths, different ways to get uh, to the Father. Uh, only one faith, and that is in the Son. So there's one Lord, one faith, and then one baptism, which is one uh, confession that Jesus died for my sins, was raised on my behalf. That's the, the, uh, the picture that baptism gives to us. And so... Before we get to talk about the diversity of gifts in the church, we first of all had to establish the unity in the church, and that unity is in the one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, um, that, that uh, a whole uh, you know, uh, framework of understanding who God is that, is, that is the Trinity, one God, three persons. Now he's going to talk about our unity being expressed in a diversity of gifts. Now, it was important to establish the unity of the body before talking about the diversity of the body. Uh, you hear it said, maybe you haven't, but I certainly have uh, said lately in our culture that diversity is our strength. And that's actually true if all that diversity has an overriding unity to hold it together. If all you have is diversity, that's called an explosion. If you have diversity with unity, that's called an organism, an organic a working together. That's called life. I mean, think of it this way. Uh, if you were to go into the operating room for an operation, and there are very few other reasons to go into an operating room, but, but if you go in there, you find people with a diversity of gifts. 
You find the surgeon who's really skilled at that particular procedure and, and is in charge of the whole thing, and he's, he's uh, going to uh, uh, cut into you and, and, uh, and, and whatever else it is. But you, you, know, you have the surgeon, then you have the nurses and the attendants who are making sure everything's organized and that all the, uh, the, the instruments and the equipment is exactly where it needs to be, when it needs to be there, and the proper sequence of being there. And, and then you have the anesthesiologist who's there to make sure you don't feel anything if he's doing his, his job right. And then you also have the janitor. Ah, you didn't think of that, did you? When you go into an operating room, who cleaned that thing before you got there? I want you to know I did. That's what I did one summer while I was going through college. I was a janitor, and well, we called him a porter, but it was, I was a janitor in, in, in a hospital. One of my jobs was to clean the operating room. And so there's a, a bunch of different things going on in an operating room, a great diversity, but there had better be one common purpose, and it better be all about me if I'm on the, you know, if I'm on the operating table. In other words, all the diversity requires an overriding unity or else the diversity is useless. You know, we've built about uh, three buildings on this site now. The structure we have came in three phases. And every time we had different tradesmen. We, we had uh, somebody lay the foundation, somebody do the site work, first of all, and then someone to lay the foundation and, and someone to frame the building, someone to put on the roof, somebody to, to run the electrical, somebody to do the plumbing. We had somebody else to do the HVAC by the way, if you know anybody you can actually do HVAC, let me know because we never found it. But uh, that, that to one side. Uh, but you have all these trades doing all these different kinds of things in the building. But the one thing you want is that everybody's on the same page of the same plan. That they're all working together with an overriding unity of purpose. And that's to build your building uh, so it's functioning the way it was designed to function. If you ever get to... Uh, 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 manage or oversee a, a, a project like this, one of the biggest things you will spend your time doing is getting all the different tradespeople to be on the same page looking at the same plan so they do things together. That, that'll be your job. But it's a diversity of, of the way people work, but it has to all come together under one plan. And so in the body of Christ, there's a great diversity, but it's not an explosion, it's a unity because we have one purpose, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Holy Spirit, one body, and uh, one hope. And we've come to see the glory of God. And that, that's, that's the unity that keeps us all together. Without the unity, it just fragments. But we are unified in Christ Jesus. So before we get to talk about the gifts, we need to talk about and understand the unity that is ours uh, in the body of Christ. So that's the connection between the two. There, it's, it's a it's, it's not like segmented paragraphs not related to each other. The one is the foundation for the next paragraph that we're going to be reading. Uh, now, before we actually plunge into reading it, uh, it what's in, in your Bible, look there at verses 8 through 10. Now, these have been problematic verses uh, for a lot of folks. It talks about Jesus ascending and descending into what's called the lower parts of the earth. And uh, there's a lot of debate on that and... and People go back and forth and, uh, about what it means and a lot of different interpretations. So uh, I'll just give you the right one. <laughs> but, uh, no, the, the, you know, some people are looking at it and saying, what does it mean Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth? And you ah, uh, between the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, that means Jesus went into hell and, and he preached to the saints or he preached to the, you know, the reprobate or, 
or he uh, preached it. You know, there, there's about, frankly, there's about two dozen different ways to interpret this thing uh, in the light of, of, of this verse and other scriptures. Here's the most likely, I think, and it's, and it's frankly the simplest. When it says Jesus ascended, we pretty much have that in hand. Uh, Jesus ascended after the resurrection into heaven. Uh, if, you, if you haven't read that, it's there in Acts chapter 1, among other places. And, and so we, we're, we're real sure what that means. And the parallelism of the two would be if he ascended into heaven, he first descended. The descent then was the incarnation. When it says Jesus descended in the lower parts of the earth, it's just saying Jesus came and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, Christ took upon himself um, humanity so that he might die in our place. So when it says he descended, uh, it's really just, just talking about that he came down um, and was uh, uh, incarnate, the, the Son of God incarnate. Now, what's going on in those verses then is that um, in verse 8, it starts out this way. It says, therefore it says. Well, the it is not just some vague pronoun without an antecedent. It is the scripture says. Paul is going to quote from his Bible, uh, specifically from Psalm 68, verse 18. And if you do later on, go back and look that up with your cross-references and all that. You'll find that verse 18, Psalm 68, is not exactly like this. Um, in, in fact, Psalm 68 says that he, and it's talking about the king, uh, went up and, and took captives and received gifts from men. This verse says he gave gifts to men. Now, um, there's several different explanations of that. Uh, some people have pointed out that some translations of the Old Testament in Paul's day actually said uh, he gave gifts rather than he received gifts. Um, and it may well be that Paul was, was using that translation uh, when he made this, this quotation. Uh, the other possibility, and I think this is, is, is uh, probably uh, as likely or more likely, and, and that is that uh, Paul is just using Psalm 68 to get us into the ballpark of what he's talking about. Psalm 68, at verse 18, is talking about how the king, when he comes back from battle and has won a great victory, he comes into the city. He goes up into the city. You always go up into Jerusalem. So, for example, King David comes back from a battle. He goes up into the city, and trailing behind him will be all the people he's captured in the battle. Those will be the captives. They, they are the prisoners. And this, this was an ancient custom. A conquering general goes into the city. The, uh, the people he's, he's, he's defeated trail behind him to impress everybody with what a great victory this is, and it shows his power to, to have, have, have won the battle. And then normally what happens is then the general gets the spoils of war. You know, all the, the, uh, the treasure and, and the money and the resources that, that used to be a part of the, uh, of the enemy camp, that now belongs to the conquering general, and so he gets the gifts. But here's the key thing and the great thing about Jesus. When he won the victory, he led us into heaven, and we are captivated by him, but we are not de uh, defeated and... Um, uh, destroyed by him. In other words, you are never more free than when you are a captive of Jesus Christ. When your life is just captured by who he is and you, and you, and you just become um, uh, um, just enthralled with, with who Jesus is and he leads you in this great victory procession into heaven, there's no greater freedom than that 
than to be a part of the captivity taken into heaven under the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the even greater thing. When Jesus gets to heaven, then he doesn't despoil us. He gives us gifts. And that's the point Paul's making. That when Jesus won the victory on the cross for us and made us his captives, if you will, his servants, you know, just another um, one of the analogies to add to the other ones that are used, you know, his, his brothers, his adopted uh, siblings, uh, his servants, his slaves, um, his chosen people, you know, all those kinds of things. When we are led by Christ into the glory of heaven, he gives to us gifts. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about in the rest of this uh, 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 string of verses together. Why the gifts? Because we're unified under the unity of God in three persons, and it's because of the work and the ministry of Christ who has won the victory for us, okay? So when we get to these verses, um, I'm going to hope that makes more sense to you, all right? Because, well, so the, the ascension is the ascension of Christ. The descent into the lower parts of the earth is the incarnation. Between the incarnation of Jesus, Christmas, and the ascent of Christ after the resurrection is the cross, and so he says, who is it who ascended yet but he who descended is saying, the one who came down and died for our sins and went up on high in, in glorious victory. So uh, we, we need to keep that cross imagery in mind. And because of the cross, we are given gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that, that's basically what those verses are saying. So let's look at these verses. Uh, we'll go ahead and read through uh, verse uh, 16. Start at verse 7. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's bow together in prayer. And gracious Father, as we come to your word once more, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher, that you would lead us into the truth that would transform us. Father, that because we have spent time before your throne of grace and listening to what your Spirit would say to us, we would become more useful in the work of the kingdom. Father, that our lives would become more reflective of your plan and desire for us. And so, Father, I'm praying for the outpouring and the work of your Holy Spirit upon us this hour so that in our time together we would draw closer to you all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, there's a lot of different ways to wind up in church. Uh, some people are in church today because mom and dad dragged them here. Uh, some people are in church because they actually want to be here. We know who you are. 
And uh, there, there's some people who are in church today because they are scared to death that if they don't, something will happen. I mean, there's a lot of ways to wind up in church, um, a lot of different avenues, and it's, it's interesting to explore that. Um, my personal experience was I grew up in the church, a Christian family, and we went to church every Sunday and had the whole church life experience uh, going on. Next week, we have, or this following week, starting tomorrow, we have our vacation Bible school. Uh, and uh, I remember when I was a boy that, uh, uh, you know, going to vacation Bible school. Uh, of course, back then, it wasn't just one week in the morning or whatever it is. It, it, it was all day long for two solid weeks. This was school. I mean, that's back when we knew how to make children suffer. So uh, we, we, had a, we had a great opportunity there. And, then, and, and Vacation Bible School made, made a tremendous impression upon me because uh, you, you would go to the school and there was always the same kinds of things they have now. Um, memory verses, memory Bible verses. You have to memorize the theme verse for the, for the Bible school. And um, invariably they announce the verse and they say, whoever memorizes the Bible verse will get a prize. So my brother and I, we'd go home, we'd memorize the verse, come back the very next morning, say the Bible verse for the pastor. And here's what he said to us. Now, learn it backwards. We never did get the prize. It's an amazing thing, I'm still in the church today. Of course, my brother went home and he actually memorized the Bible verse backwards. <laughs> and he still didn't get the prize. So that, you know, that, that sort of thing... Uh, never quite works out. We, we had crafts. You know, we did, did the, the craft things. And um, one, one of the things we did was we, we made crafts out of cigar boxes. Um, now, I know this is a generational thing. As soon as I say cigar boxes, there's, there's sort of a blank stare on half of you, and the other half of my generation are looking at it and say, yeah, I know what a uh, cigar... A, a cigar box is like a, a really stiff box with a, a lid on it, and the cigars were placed in that. And uh, once it was empty, it was like a really good craft box. In fact, you can buy what are basically cigar boxes in craft stores today. It's that, that little stiff box with the lid on it. Well, that, that started life as a, as a cigar box. Now, when I was going to vacation Bible school, they were real live cigar boxes. I mean, everything I know about Renaissance art, I learned from cigar boxes. You know where this is going. Dutch masters. There was a picture of all these Dutch uh, painters on the, on the inside of the, uh, of the cigar box. But, and, and I remember having a theological problem. I was only like seven years old or something, but I, I, I was precocious. And, uh, but I remember, knowing, you know, they, they, they tell us that smoking is a sin, and, and it is, okay. But they tell us smoking is a sin, and then they give us cigar boxes. Somebody had to smoke to the cigars before we could have the cigar boxes. I mean, any way you cut it, we, you know, it, it, somebody's doing something around here they shouldn't do. So that, that was a problem for me. But, uh, but what we did with the cigar boxes, we were given a, a, a pile of, of macaroni noodles, uncooked. All right, macaroni noodles, you've done this, right? You take your Elmer's glue and you put a little glue on it and you glue it on the box until the whole box is covered with macaroni noodles, you know, this ugly thing. And I, I think the point of the craft was to show us this is what happens to your lungs if you smoke <laughs> cigars. I, I think, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that was the point of it. 
but uh, you, you, you get your craft done. You have your little macaroni-covered cigar box and go home. Come back the next day, and miraculously, it had been spray-painted gold. whole thing was gold. So you could take it to your mother and say, Here, Mom, jewelry box. <laughs> and this is how you know your mother loves you. She said, Oh, I love it, I love it. You know, what is she going to do with a cigar box? But, the, you know, that, that's the kind of thing we do. Those, those are uh, parts of my memories. I, I, I grew up learning the Bible stories, hearing them as a child. And you know how that works. You, you, uh, you hear the, the story as a child, and, and then you hear a little bit more, and then it's explained, and then you get the context. And by the time you're in your 20s or so, it's boring uh, because they've taken all the fun out of it. Uh, but some people come to church, and they've never heard the Bible stories before. I mean, some people come to church, and... This is the first time they've ever heard the Bible stories. They're, they're young adults. Can you imagine how much fun that would be? I mean, not to grow up without church, but, but to come to church and hear the stories for the first time. I mean, to, you, you hear about David and Goliath. Well, we all know what happens with David and Goliath. You know, he's, he gets the stones. He's got the slingshot. He's going to kill the giant. Yeah, yeah, get the good parts. Yeah, yeah. But can you imagine if you never heard that story before? And you're wondering what's going to happen. What's this kid going to do with, with these stones against a giant? What's going to happen? And when the giant falls, you just go, yeah! Can you imagine what it's like to hear the story of the resurrection for the first time? For the very first time. You know, we tell the story. We, we, we sing the story. And every time you hear about the resurrection, your heart just leaps for joy. And, and, and if, I hope you can remember the first time, but can you imagine if the first time you heard that story, Jesus is dead, he's in the grave, but God raised him. You know, can you imagine? I mean, this, this, by the way, is why we need the diversity of experiences in the body of Christ so that we can all share the wonder of hearing the stories for the first time from people who are hearing the stories for the first time time. Uh, there's so many ways to travel the Christian path, and, and you only get to travel one of them, your own. But what a joy it is to hear somebody else's testimony, how they traveled with Jesus, how God brought them through by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you're hearing those stories, and as they're coming together, you're, you're getting to, to, to see the grace of God in a whole new setting, in a whole new venue, and you're rejoicing with that person. That, that's why the diversity in the church is such a joy and such a wonderful thing uh, to have for us. But with all these different experiences and different ways of coming into the church, there's one thing that's common to all of us who are believers. The moment came when we saw Jesus and we fell head over heels in love with him. And it's never stopped. We love him every day. It's it's almost like every day with Jesus. Anybody know it? (laughs) Sweeter than the day before. Okay, I won't, I won't uh, do that to you. But, uh, uh, but, but that's, that's, that's our commonality. We all fell in love with Jesus. And now we come to this church and we have this wonderful, broad diversity of how the Holy Spirit is using us and working in our lives. And I think that's why Paul moves from the unity of our experience in Christ to the diversity of our experience in Christ. Not a difference and diversity of salvation experiences, but a diversity of the way in which that grace comes to us time and time and time again. So as we look at these verses, I want you to be thinking about how God is working in your life to use you, how God uses us by the power of the Holy Spirit 
for his glory in Christ Jesus. And so we plunge in here at verse 7, and, and we read, The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, it's not as though some people got a little bit of grace to save them, and some got a lot of grace to save them. And No, you see, there is the general grace of God. There's a way of experiencing God's grace that you get to do just because you're on planet Earth. God in his grace holds the universe together. God in his grace keeps the whole thing from, from blowing up into what is technically called smithereens. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, it is the grace of God that does things like hold the atom together. You know, if you've ever studied uh, uh, nuclear physics, which I haven't, but I'm going to pretend I, I, I have, but you know that the atom is trying tremendously to blow itself apart and is finely tuned and balanced and held together. And God's grace holds it together. God's grace supplies the sunshine and the rain and, and the, 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 the food chain and all those other things. So, you know, just, just by being here, you experience this general grace of God. And that's why we all should see in the created, uh, uh, creation around us, uh, we should see the eternal deity and power of God and give him praise and glory and worship him. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. And so there's, there's this general grace of God, but then there's a special grace of God that you encounter when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you see Jesus died for me. And you see that God loved me so much he sent and gave his only begotten son. And all I need to do is believe in him. And I'll never perish but have everlasting life. And when the Holy Spirit opens up your heart and your mind to realize that, that's a special work of the grace of God. So you have this sort of general kind of grace that that God bestows upon all creation. But there's a special grace that saves us. And then there's a sustaining grace that uses us. And that is a grace beyond degree. You know, when, when you love Jesus and, and you, you want your life to honor him and glorify him, then when he asks you to do something, uh, you don't start arguing with him. You just say, yeah, Jesus, if that makes you happy, I want to do it. I want to love you. That's why when you walk through the hallways and, and um, you hear the voice of God asking you to do something like teach or volunteer in VBS or, or work in, in, uh, in, in one of the ministries or something like that, and you hear the voice of God, and it sounds so much like the voice of the pastor's wife. <laughs> Look, in my world, the voice of God sounds like the pastor's wife. Okay. But there is, you know, there, there ought to be at least a part of you that says, thank you, Jesus, for letting me work and giving me something to do in the kingdom. See, in this verse, we see um, what the source of the spiritual gifts are. The source of the gift is God himself, the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We we speak of the Spirit um, bestowing the gifts, but that is the will of the Father through the Son. And, and these gifts are given to us so that we might be useful in the work of the kingdom. I want to illustrate that or, or elucidate on that. Uh, if you have your Bible in front of me, uh, in front of me, in front of you, um, and I hope you do, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about the proper role of spiritual gifts, particularly in the abuse of gifts, uh, comparing the gift of prophecy, which is proclaiming uh, the word of God in a... Um, uh, in a way that people understand, and the gift of tongues, which is 
um, you know, usually thought of as a, as a gift of worship. Uh, but uh, uh, in these three chapters, Paul talks about the, 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 the role of gifts and what gifts are and how they should function. And right in the middle of that is chapter 13 that says, and this is the greatest way is just to love each other and let that work out in daily life. But at the beginning of that chapter, you've had a chance to find it now, uh, Paul talks about what the gifts are. Now, I want you to, to notice something. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. Okay. Uh, and Paul says, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Just because my gift isn't your gift doesn't mean we're on two different wavelengths. The Holy Spirit gives all the gifts uh, to us. So whatever your gift is, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So there are varieties of gifts, the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and some of you right now are whipping out your Trinity highlighter, you know, to mark these verses. This is why we teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Paul, again, just like he did in Ephesians, Paul, again, is is, is telling us about how uh, we are working and, and useful in the kingdom on the basis of the triune nature of God. One God in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he says there's varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And so one God gives the gifts. These are gifts given by God. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is not only is it a parallelism of the Trinity of uh, the, um, uh, what he says, uh, the varieties of, of gifts, spirit, service, Lord, activities, God. It's not like these are three things. These are parallel statements. You got that? These are parallel statements. And so when you think of gifts, verse 4, you also need to think of the word service, verse 5, and the verse activities or workings in verse 6. So that's what a spiritual gift is. It is, it is something given to you so that you can work and serve in the body of Christ. Now, this isn't a bizarre thing that's given to just a few folks who are a little spiritually over the top. This is God's normative expectation for every believer. To everyone, a gift is given according to the measure of the grace of Christ. Everyone receives that. Now, look at verse 7, and then we'll leave 1 Corinthians 12. It says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why are you given a gift? So that you can shine? And everybody says, wow, what a great you know, person you are. You are given a gift, a spiritual gift, in order that you might be useful in the work of the church, in the work of the kingdom. You're given a gift so that uh, all might benefit and all might uh, be built up in that regard. And so a gift, a spiritual gift, is what God gives you to do in the work of ministry. And it could be something great, and it can be something that we don't say is great, but it's still great because it's given by God. So your gift is whatever God has given you to do. A lot of us feel like, oh, well, my gift has got to be uh, something I like to do or uh, like a talent or something. And, and, and I know this. And, and what we do is we go and we, we take personality tests, you know, sort of like employment tests. You know, what job do you want? But, um, and we take personality tests, and we call them spiritual gift inventories, and we discover what my gift is. Maybe you've done this, and, and that's fine. I'm, I'm, that's okay. But here's the temptation. I, I, I take this inventory, I find out what my spiritual gift is, and now I've got my gift. I put it in a shoebox and I carry it around. Say, so I'm willing to use my gift, but that's all I'm willing to use. See, my gift is teaching. What? 
You need somebody to take out the trash? Not my gift. Nothing could be further from what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about God has given me life everlasting. He's given me the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. And so as I'm walking around, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit in me. And what, you need to take out the trash? What, you said this trash belongs to the body of Christ? You mean I get to take out the trash that belongs to Jesus? What a privilege. You can't stop me. I'm going to do it. I didn't hear a single amen. <laughs> See, but when you're filled with the Holy Spirit when, and, and you realize that, that all of it's grace given to you and someone says, you know, here's, here's something that needs to be done. We should be out doing each other in the desire to, to, to be useful and getting that task done in some way. You know, and, and it's not like, oh, this, this is my gift and this is all that I do. You see, it, your gift is what God asks you to do. You don't even need to be good at it, right? Yeah, right. Um, back when I was playing tennis, which was, uh, well, it was in the days of wooden rackets where you had the little frame <laughs> thing that you had to put on it. <laughs> the, those of you who are nodding are either historians or, or uh, over the hill. But, um, you know, you had the frame on it. Uh, but anyway, back in the days of wooden rackets. So, and this will surprise you. When I was learning how to play tennis, I read a book on it. Uh, <laughs> You know, what better way to learn how to play tennis? Read a book. Never played the game, just read books about it. But anyway, but one of the things the book said, it said, you don't have to be great to enjoy the game. It said, in fact, most of you will never be a tennis pro. You'll, you'll never earn a living playing tennis. It said, but you can enjoy the game, and you can get better. You may never be really good. You might always be a low-grade player, but you can enjoy the game. Just get somebody who enjoys playing with you, and you play the game. You don't have to be the greatest at it. When you think about it, a lot of things are like that. You, know? you don't have to be a concert pianist before you're allowed to play the piano. Well, some of you are never allowed to play the piano because, okay, but... But the, but, but the point is, when God asks us to do something, it's not like we have to be the very best there ever was. When we're asked to teach in the body of Christ, we say, well, I don't know if I can teach. That, you know, all I need is availability. God will show you how to do the rest of it. And that's, that's, that's the point of the, of the gifts, is that we are available and obedient to the calling of God in our lives. And so this, this calling of gifts, this, this employment in the body of Christ, is a work of the grace of God using us to be uh, useful in God's kingdom. You know, and, and again, you know, it, I mean, how good do you have to be? I was thinking about the Apostle Peter this week. Um, and uh, you, you remember the time he was in the boat with, and Jesus was walking on the water? Now, now, Peter earned his living in boats. He knew a lot about water. He probably knew more about water than, than you and I know. Uh, he knew about the waves and the currents and where the fish are and all that other thing. But there's one thing we know that Peter knew about water. You can't walk on it. It just can't be done. And so if you ask Peter, can you walk on water? No, I'm really not very good at it. <laughs> but there, there's Jesus walking on the water, and they say, you know, who is this guy? And they identify him as Jesus. And Peter shouts out, he says, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, all right, Peter, come on. And Peter jumps out of the boat onto the water, and he starts walking on the water. 
I don't know what that means. I don't know what it feels like. But Peter is walking on the water towards Jesus, and then he has attack, an attack of rationality. He starts looking at the waves and the wind, and he realizes, I'm walking on water, and he starts to sink. Jesus comes over, he picks him up, and puts him back in the boat. Now, here's what we do with Peter. We call Peter a failure. Say, so, oh, look at Peter. He failed at walking on water. Did better than you ever did. I mean, you get in the boat, and having a dry foot is a sign of no courage. I mean, we've got to realize that this Peter guy, he actually has a memory in his head of what it's like to walk on water that you and I don't have. And for the rest of his life, whenever God asked him to do something, he remembered, if I step out in faith, I can walk on water. And if I can walk on water, then I can, I can preach, and I can, and I can teach, and I can share, and I can work, and I can serve, and I can minister... You know, those few steps, we call them a failure. But I, I suspect in Peter's life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they became the foundation of a life of obedience and usefulness to God. See, you don't have to be great at it before God can use it. Because that's just how big and how great God is. So the, the source of our gifts is the grace of God, the calling of God, just that he asks. Now, uh, okay, secondly, I want to look at the, um, at the uh, cost of it all. And that's in verses 8 through 10. This is one where it says in Jesus, uh, before he ascended, he descended. And in, in between the ascension of Christ and the incarnation of Christ, in the middle of that is the cross of Christ. Here's the cost of the gift God gives you and what he calls you to do. The blood of Jesus. That means when you're asked by the Holy Spirit to, res to respond in obedience and ministry and service for the sake of the body of Christ, that invitation comes to you at the cost of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of us who had a chance last week to go out and, in, and, and exercise our gift of buying a crayon for the glory of God. You know, we thought it was just people begging for stuff, you know, supplies for VBS or something. But here's what it was. We were given the gift, the opportunity, the privilege to buy a crayon for the glory of God. And we thought nothing of it. But if you think about it, what did it take for God to ask me to buy a crayon for him? It took the blood of Jesus. It took the blood of his son on the cross for me. And suddenly buying a crayon becomes a big deal. It becomes a major thing. When we realize that the cost is the blood of Jesus, then the obedience becomes joyful and automatic. See, our problem is God asks us to do things and we start negotiating with him. I'm kind of glad God didn't negotiate with me about whether or not Jesus would come and die for my sins. He just did that for me. And so we, we talked about these verses just a moment ago. But um, uh, it's specifically the cost of our being able to serve in the body of Christ, use our gifts. The cost of that is the blood of Jesus. Uh, very quickly, verse 11. And I, I'm supposing we'll stop here. He says, and he gave the apostles. Apostles are the, uh, like the first generation witnesses to Jesus. These were people uh, who uh, mostly uh, had, had seen him, had had. had heard him, walked with him. They were able to bring like a first-hand testimony 
of who Jesus is and what a privilege that, that, that is. But that apostolic ministry is preserved for us in the New Testament. The, the New Testament, uh, the, the inspired writers were the apostles, and they were inspired to set down what they had experienced and what, who Jesus was and what, what that was all about, and then, of course, how that works out in the life of the church. So um, that apostolic ministry, we, we, in many ways, we have it encapsulated in the New Testament today. Uh, he said, so he gave the, pro- the apostles, and he gave the prophets. A prophet is someone who speaks forth the word of God. Even in the Old Testament, when an Old Testament prophet talks about the future, God promises I'm going to do something in the future, it's, order, it's in order to shed light on the present so that your behavior will change and be conformed to what God said he's going to do in the future. You got that? In other words, the prophecies were not made just so we could have a, an, an amazing sort of psychic experience with the California psychics or something. But, uh, but rather, the, the prophecies were given so that our life might be redirected and reordered according to the promises of God. And this is what a prophet does. A prophet proclaims the word of God, the word of God to God's people so that they might live a godly life. Uh, that's, that's what a, a prophet is. So he said he gave some to do that. Um, then also there are evangelists, those who are uh, particularly uh, involved in, in confronting sinners with the claims of God in Christ Jesus. The shepherds, that's just another word for pastors, those who would minister to God's people. And teachers, obviously those who would, who would transfer knowledge and understanding from, from their brain to somebody else's brain. And teachers. You'll notice that the, the examples that Paul uses there all have to do with sharing the witness to Christ. The examples he chooses all have something to do with making Christ better known in people's lives. And that's also, and we'll end with this, that also is an essential aspect of a spiritual gift. In some way, it will bring to people some aspect of the glory of God in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, as, as, as we just uh, look briefly at at, at the concept of spiritual gifts, there's no, no sense to get, uh, or no reason to get uh, um, sidetracked by, by other things. Just understand, God has given you a gift because he has given you the Holy Spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And having given you the Holy Spirit, there's something God wants you to do for his glory by the power of that Holy Spirit. And folks, that is your spiritual gift. It may change from time to time, situation to situation, but the, the gift is to be employed by the Holy Spirit in sharing Christ and the glory of the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is your gift. So what I'd like to challenge you this week is to just be listening and, and aware of opportunities, whether it's in your home or at your place of business, in your school, out in the marketplace, uh, and wherever it is, the opportunity that God gives you to say or do something that will reflect God's grace and glory in your life and reflect it back to somebody else's life. Um, it might be something that you count very, very small. It might be just running an errand or a kind word or whatever it is. But look, there is no small gift because our God is great. There's no small impact of a gift because our God's power is infinite. And there, there, there's nothing that you can do for the sake of the kingdom that is, that is insignificant because our God is a great God with a great purpose and a great power. And when we are obedient to the call of his Holy Spirit to use the gift of the moment that he gives to us, and that is the working of the Spirit, then the Father receives the praise, the honor, and the glory. And so I challenge you, 
Just be listening. Be ready to be useful for the glory of God. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, we're just so thankful again that none of this is dependent upon us, but you give us all the all the resources and the power. You give us the guidance and the wisdom. And so I pray indeed that the Holy Spirit would claim us and claim our day-to-day living, that your Holy Spirit would just work in such a way that, um, that constantly we are seeing that opportunity to live for your glory. Father, we're just so thankful for Jesus, thankful for the cross, thankful that he, you raised him from the dead, thankful, Father, that now we live that resurrection power in him. Pray that you would keep us obedient, all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.